Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, we're going to continue our series working through the Book of Judges to explore how we would understand uh, teaching through the Book of Judges from a redemptive historical and historical grammatical methodology. So I hope you enjoy the show. In our last episode dealing with the exposition of the book of Judges, we ended on the passage uh, from the end of chapter 2 into the first six verses of chapter 3 dealing with the paradigm that this sets uh, for the rest of the book of Judges where you have uh, God delivering, uh, the people being settled for for a certain while, then they start to apostatize and then they go uh, into slavery and then they repent and God raises up a deliverer and over and over the cycle goes. And so we'll see as we go through this section uh, the, the next section from chapter 3 to chapter 16, that there is these cycles of apostasy and deliverance as they work their way through. So we will be actually working our way through the book of Judges by exp- by, by basically uh, you know, hopscotching through these different cycles of apostasy and deliverance. So the first cycle is the, the Kushan, Rishathim, and the Othniel cycle. This is from Judges 3, uh, verses 7 through Judges 3, verse 11. Now, this is the Othniel's judgeship. Uh, he serves as the paradigmatic model uh, of what a, a judge or a leader was supposed to be uh, over Israel. And we'll see that in, in a couple of different ways. First, he defeats a very powerful enemy. Uh, he defeats uh, the, the king of Mesopotamia, Kushan Rishathaim. Uh, the name is probably not his real name. It's probably a mocking pseudonym. It means something like dark and doubly wicked. Um, so I doubt his loving mother and father named him Dark and Doubly Wicked, but it could be a play on his real name. It's said over and over again, and in, in about three verses, it's said four times, um, probably to drive home again the point of his wickedness. And a lot of scholars think this is this is very similar to what we get later uh, in in uh, the Book of Daniel and such, where we see. Uh, the name Antiochus Epiphanes, or, or God uh, Manifest. Uh, and, and in Daniel, uh, he's called Antiochus Epimanes, which means the mad one, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a play on the name that happens there to show that Antiochus Epiphanes is actually Antiochus Epimanes, uh, the mad one, not God being manifest. And so there, there's likely a, a mocking pseudonym happening here uh, with Kushan, Rishathaim, the dark, doubly wicked one. Now, why do we say that Othniel is the paradigmatic example of a good judge? First, 
he has a simple a simple victory. It's a, a simple, straightforward account of his victory. There's there's no need of outside help uh, for him. He doesn't have to uh, to have the armies rescue him. There's no special vows that are made uh, th- throughout this. It's it's a very simple, straightforward passage. Uh, it also it, it, there's also no flaw in his character that's either mentioned or alluded to. We'll find in the book of Judges. A lot of time, uh, the 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 sin or the brokenness of the people involved is more caught than taught, so to speak. It's more implicit uh, than explicit. And you're supposed to read these passages um, and to come away not liking a lot of these people, or there's kind of uh, foreboding uh, illusions to why certain people are bad. Now, n- none of that is with Othniel. In fact, we're we're told the only thing we're told about Othniel previously is in Judges chapter one, uh, when we're told that Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. Speaking about um, uh, Kiriath Sefer, one of the one of the cities that they were supposed to capture, so he gave him his daughter Aksa as his wife. Um, so what we what we actually see is is he was brave. He actually fulfilled. Uh, remember, we talked about the the ban that Israel repeatedly did not fulfill in driving out the Canaanites. Well, we know that Othniel uh, was one of the, the the faithful Israelites who who completed uh, that 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 ban. He he drove out uh, the Canaanites from Kiriath Sefer. And he had an Israelite wife, so he was not guilty uh, of uh, syncretism or of uh, blending with the Canaanites. The focus of the passage also in Judges 3 dealing with Othniel is actually on Yahweh more than Othniel, uh, many scholars would say. So we see over and over again uh, about three times that Yahweh's involvement is explicitly stated at every stage of of the short cycle. Um, and so we see that uh, it's the Lord who raised up the deliverer. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Lord handed over uh, uh, the, the king of uh, Mesopotamia to him and so, and so on and so forth. And so uh, Yahweh actually receives the glory for the victory throughout this passage. This is, again, the model cycle. The, the judges following this are going to deviate in a downward way away from this model account. Remember, we said that this is a downward cycle, kind of kind of like circling the toilet bowl. It gets worse as it goes. This model cycle is about as good as it gets, um, and we'll see um, that uh, that they, they, they get worse uh, from there. They, they start to diverge in somewhat ambiguous ways, but then we'll see it becomes more and more explicit as it goes. So Othniel is, is a very short, it's a, it's a minor judge cycle. Excuse me, uh, and uh, and it, it, it's it's just rather abrupt, but it is the the paradigmatic example. Following after Othniel, we get the Moab and Ehud cycle. This is from uh, this is basically the rest of uh, the book of Judges up through uh, sorry the the, uh, the rest of chapter three in the book of Judges up through verse twelve. So who are the characters? The characters involved are Eglon, the king of Moab. He's described as very very fat, not just a little fat, but <laughs> super super duper fat. Uh, the name Eglon is actually a form of the Hebrew word for bull or calf. It's the Hebrew word hagel, um, uh, which also reminds one of the of the word for round, which is agol um, or, or rotund. And so his name is actually, again, probably a play on words uh, describing that he is uh, fat and rotund. Now, Ehud, the judge, uh, is left-handed. We're told this in, in uh, verse 15 where it says that he is restricted in his right hand. 
some think that this might be a physical deformity, uh, but in chapter 20, verse 16, uh, this, the, there's some argument against this where it talks about 700 left-handed men. Uh, so this may be a hereditary thing rather uh, than a than a, a physical deformity. Uh, and in some cases, this would actually give advantage in combat if opponents are right-handed, if they're not used to fighting a left-handed person. Um, so the phrase probably just means left-handed. It doesn't actually mean that there's some type of, it's it's restricted in the right hand, uh, but that, that probably doesn't mean that there's some deformity in the right hand. It just means that he's not good with his left hand, meaning, or his right hand, meaning he's left-handed. Um, and so that that that, that is uh, one of the stages. But you have to remember, being left-handed in in some ca- in some cases actually uh, is seen as uh, as somewhat of a um, a corruption of, of the norm. And so we see this first uh, this first inkling uh, that the judges are starting to to corrode a little bit in the fact that he is left-handed. It might give him military advantage, um, but we're seeing that he is already seen as somewhat. Um, maybe not unclean, but there's already a divergence that's happening in the story. Uh, the act of deception is at the heart of the story. So in verse uh, in verses 15 to 19, uh, Ehud deceives Eglon, so he sneaks a dagger in on his right thigh. Um, again, because he's left-handed, he can uh, he can reach across to his right thigh, and they probably wouldn't be looking for a sword there. Uh, because someone right-handed would carry it on their left side. So Ehud turns back to Eglon uh, after he he is about to leave and the guards have been dismissed uh, with a claim that he has a secret word for Eglon, who thinks that he may have some type of divine oracle um, since he's just passed the the idol. So we read uh, in in verse uh, 19, uh, but he himself, right? So, so after they give tribute to to Eglon, uh, Ehud and 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 the and his kind of band leaves. Uh, they they turn back uh, at the idols, which are at Gilgal. Uh, he comes back and he says, "I have a secret message for you, O king." And the king said, "Silence!" And all who are attending him left. So there's this this idea of uh, he kind of got to the idols and turned around and says he has a secret message. And so um, uh, Eglon might have reason to think that he has some type of divine oracle for him from uh, the idols. So there's a bit of an irony here that he's anticipating a message from the gods, but he gets a message from God in the form of the dagger. And so there's a little bit of a a narratival um, kind of irony there. Uh, he He then escapes uh, he, he, he escapes because uh, the, the guards kind of, uh, you know, are, are embarrassed to come in and, and check uh, on, on Ehud uh, because they think he might be relieving himself. And so they don't want to go and buys it buys uh, Ehud a bit of time uh, because they don't want to they don't want to bother Eglog, uh, Eglog, uh, Eglon, pardon me. Um, and he goes and he rallies uh, 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 um Sorry, uh, Ehud rallies the the troops at Ephraim, and he completely wipes out the Moabites, and it leads to peace for about 80 years. Uh, so we see Eglon as a sacrificial victim. Again, his name his name uh, kind of means uh, fatted. Um, for, uh, uh, it's a play on words. His name means bull or calf, but it's, it reminds one of the of the word round or fatted, and so. He, he is the fatted calf. He is seen as the sacrificial victim. Uh, the, the use of mincha is the Hebrew word. It's common actually used for an offering. So in verse 15, uh, when, when we read that the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son uh, of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man, and the son of Israel sent tribute 
by him to Eglon, the son of uh, the king of Moab. That tr- that term tribute is mincha. It's actually uh, used specifically for a lot of the offerings in uh, the the Levitical text. The description of the stabbing of Eglon is very graphic compared to normal Hebrew narrative. Uh, the, it, it's it's often, uh, the, the only other times where you get something that this graphic is really the description of the disembowelment of animals during the sacrifices. Uh, and so Eglon really is, is portrayed as the fatted calf, kind of the, the dumb animal who's led to the slaughter, who's led to the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, I think is what we're supposed to get from this, um, that uh, that is made on behalf of Israel by the judge. So how are we to assess the actions of Ehud, right? So there's kind of this negative question. He used deception, deception, uh, brutality. He was operating like a typical Canaanite, actually, uh, in some of his methods. So um, Block, actually, in the NAC series, takes a very negative view of the tactics of, uh, of Ehud. Right? He, th- he thinks that Israel was possibly in a covenant uh, treaty relationship with Moab. Uh, again, Mincha could refer to the offering given under a treaty relationship. So um, when it says the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, right, that, that could have been the offering under a, a, a treaty relationship. Um, and and the, this means that the deception would have violated the covenant. So in order to free Israel, Ehud actually had to uh, not only operate like the, the, the Canaanites, use deception and brutality, but he actually had to uh, do, engage in covenant violation as well. There's no mention here of, of Ehud being raised up by God, and there's no mention of the, of the Holy Spirit working on him. So there's, there's, somewhat, uh, there's somewhat negative. Uh, another another view uh, is that there's kind of positive and negative. Younger in the NIVAC series takes a view like this, where, again, all of the negative is there. Uh, but some of the positive is that he proclaims the Lord has given Moab over. So in verse uh, 28, uh, he said, pursue them for the Lord has handed your enemies, the Moabites, over to you. And so he seems to, to understand that the Lord is the one that's working in the victory over over Moab, uh, Belcher uh, in in his in his commentary uh, seems to think that it's just kind of ambiguous whether this is negative uh, or or positive. It's it's not that it's both. It's just it's just ambiguous, and this could be indicative um, of, of the deception that's used in warfare and in situations of spying or you know lying to the Nazis uh, to hide, to you know protect the Jews that type of thing. Um, it's not as clean as Othniel. But it's also not all bad. He doesn't he doesn't quite fit the model judge, uh, but he's also we're also not told anything expressly terrible about him either, as we will for some of the others. Um, Yahweh's role is not as prominent. There's no mention of his actions except in kind of that secondary uh, mention where Ehud says that the Lord has handed over the Moabites, um, and there are some commendable things. So Ehud is willing to take personal risks uh, for God and, and for the Israelites without explicit assurances from God um, that he will but that what he's going to do is succeed right so you could you know it, it, for those of you who heard the you know have read the book before you know that there are uh, there are some judges who are basically are like well you know God can you give me some assurances that this is going to work out before I do it uh, Ehud is just bold and brave uh, and, and and acts decisively um, so it's kind of mixed uh, so coming out of Ehud, we go to another minor prophet. So Ehud's a major prophet. Uh, we then go to a minor prophet. He gets one verse, 
Verse 31 of this is Shamgar. Uh, Shamgar, so so in the same way that uh, Othniel was the model judge for the major judges, Shamgar is the model judge for the minor judges, right? So a major judge basically gets a, mer- a, a full narrative. A minor judge gets kind of a passing mention. So uh, verse 31 says, Now after him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck and killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. It's really the only mention that you get. Um, so he is he is the model. He's the most successful. He is identified as the son of Anath, which has generated a lot of discussion uh, about what that what that meant. There's some possible interpretations, uh, such as that that Anath is actually the place of origin. Uh, so we see uh, uh, Beth Anath or the house of Anath in Joshua 19 uh, and Judges 133. Uh, there's an appellation referring to Anat, the goddess of war, which may mean he was a mercenary or a professional soldier. Um, or it's possible that this is a military designation, that he's a, a member of uh, the Archer's Guild, depending on how you, how you actually want to translate Anat. Uh, he is the first minor judge, and he delivered Israel in a single-handed act with an agricultural instrument, an ox goad. An ox goad is kind of like a long rod with a hook on the end, and it's used to help steer oxen while they're while they're plowing. Um, and and so he 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 kind of sets the example uh, of the use of agricultural tools in, in in victory that we'll see throughout the book of Judges. Um, he's introduced with a non-cyclical minor judge formula, uh, which is the the after him was, uh, and so we see that in in verses three, uh, chapter three, verse seven, and chapter three, verse twelve, as the example of the major cyclical judge uh, formula, which follows again the son of Israel's the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer, and so on and so forth. So we see we see kind of this contrast where the minor judges are after him. There's this judge, whereas the major judges get that whole cyclical formula uh, going for them. Um, that we can see um, the, the 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 minor judges, um, the non-cyclical judges. So you have Shamgar in 331, Tola in 101, uh, Jair in 103, uh, Ibzan in 128, Elon in 1211, and Abat, Abdon in 1213. And they all kind of have these have these non-cyclical um, transitions into their into their statements. After him arose, or there arose after him, or and their judge after him, or some variation along that. There's no official difference in the role of the non-cyclical judges, so they did still seem to be a a deliverer uh, and some type of ruler. Uh, The non-cyclical judges seem to reinforce the moral decline that's taking place in the cyclical judges. Um, And the ideal non-cyclical judge, uh, the most successful of the minor judges, uh, is again Shamgar, who starts, and we'll see see that as, uh, as it goes. We'll see that downward spiral happening in the minor judges uh, as well. The next cycle um, is the Canaanite and Barak cycle. This this covers chapters four through five. Chapter four is the actual narrative, the prose section, and is followed by a, a poetic section, uh, a, the Song of Deborah in chapter five, which we will discuss. So the prose uh, narrative in Judges four, the cycle starts all over again with the death of, uh, of Ehud. Um, so we see 
Again, four verses one, that that normal transition that the sons of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. Um, the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. And so that whole cycle starts all over again after the death of Ehud. The oppressors are Jabin, the king of Canaan, reigning in Hatzor, and his commander Sisera. They harshly oppress Israel for 20 years, uh, and they had, we're told they have 900 chariots of iron, which is a, a pretty great intimidation to Israel. Uh, in this cycle, Deborah, as a prophetess, we see her as a, as a prophetess primarily, but she has a role as a judge. Um, some debate whether she actually is a, an official judge. Uh, she sits in the hill country of Ephraim outside the towns uh, of Bethel and Shiloh. Uh, we see that in 4.5, where we're told expressly that she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. Um, the, the description of her sitting is interesting because that typically is language used of the rulers or the judges in a certain area. They would, they would sit in their location. They would sit in judges. They would sit in, uh, on, their, on their thrones or their chairs or they'd sit on the city walls. That sitting motif throughout, throughout the Bible is, is usually um, a description of some type of judge hearing out affairs. Um, hearing out kind of the affairs of the people and, and, and judging and, and, and deciding among them. So Deborah does seem to be some type of judge. Um, she's accessible to the whole nation who come to her, right? So she seems to be a national judge hearing the affairs of all the people suffering under the Canaanites. Um, and so she does seem to have one of the broadest reaches of all the judges. Um, she did have a role as a prophetess. Uh, the people come to her to render divine decisions, especially in the light of the crisis with the Canaanites. And she announces the word of God to Barak in 4.6. So uh, she, in 4.6 says, Now she sent word and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, uh, the Kadesh, uh, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, has indeed commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun and so on and so forth. And so she's proclaiming the word of God to Barak. Uh, and she prophesies concerning the outcome of the battle in verse 9. So we see in verse 9, she says, I will certainly go with you. However, the fame shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Um, and so she is actually giving a prophetic pronouncement there. So she is acting as, as, as one of the early prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, she's a positive figure seen with, uh, within the downward spiral of the book, uh, but it's still part of the downward spiral. Why do we say that? Well, first, uh, in this t in this day and age, as uh, you know, as as sexist as it may sound now, it was expected that the ruler would have been a man, and so the fact that Deborah is actually raised up, it is an indictment about the leadership that was in Israel at the time. That there was no one that was fit, there was no one that was brave, there was no one that was courageous to lead, uh, and so that the glory uh, would actually be handed over to a woman, as we'll see um, uh, later. It's actually uh, not even Deborah; it's a kind of a secondary character. 
Um, they're in Bethel and Shiloh. This is places where the ark resided and the priests would have served. Um, so the question is, why are the people not going to the priests? Why are they going to uh, this this prophetess uh, out uh, sitting under a tree, <laughs> so to speak? Uh, the Umim and the Thumim for divine decisions, uh, they, they were designated in the Pentateuch, that they were to be used for divine decisions, and we don't see them uh, being used. Again, the the fact that the priestly institution was already experienced a decline, right? The people were not going to them uh, to seek the Lord. They weren't going to them to use the Urim and Thummim, right? They were going to a prophetess, right? So this this already tells us about the priestly decline uh, that Israel was experiencing. So individuals come to Deborah in private, uh, not in public, which is uh, also a problem. Uh, she does not lead Israel into battle, so she calls Barak to go into battle and lead Israel. Uh, she states that both Barak and Sisera lose the glory that should have been theirs. Uh, they lose them again. She prophesies to a woman, giving priority uh, a, or pulling priority a, away from the male leadership, um, which was seen as a, a, as a downside. Uh, Barak is rather weak-willed and indecisive, and so he is the military leader of Israel, and he's seen as weak-willed and indecisive. He hesitates, and he's reluctant to believe God's promise for deliverance. So we, we see in 7 and 8 um, uh, that, uh, that Barak said to her, uh, if you will go with me, then I'll go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. Right, so he hesitates. He wants some type of assistant. He wants some type of divine sign. He's dependent on Deborah, and he's not going to go unless she goes up. Now, Barak, his name means lightning, um, and there's a there's a bit of an irony that the lightning was actually outshone by this this woman who does prophecy in private. Uh, losing an opportunity to be used by God in a greater way because of his hesitation. Um, the, the secondary character is Jael. She's the wife of Heber, a Kenite. Uh, Kenite is not an Israelite. Um, as, uh, so, so again, this is uh, losing glory. You know, the, the, the military leader who should have been the one receiving glory uh, for, for God actually loses it to a secondary character, the wife of, an, uh, of a Kenite. Um, Sisera did not expect what was coming, right? So there, there's peace between Jabin and Heber the Kenite. Um, and so he, he's kind of at ease. Uh, and the heroine who break is the one who breaks with family loyalties to defeat one of Yahweh's enemies. We read that in 4, uh, in, in four uh, verse 21, where it says, But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him. This is Jael. Remember, he's kind of at rest. He, he, takes, uh, he, he takes a rest in, in a tent. Um, uh, she took a tent ha- and a hammer in a hand, went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. Um, so she breaks with her family loyalties to defeat that enemy. This would have been wildly against the ancient Near Eastern hospitality norms. Um, Davis, uh, in, in his commentary, writes, quote, Some are loath to own her actions. Alas, someone says, should that Jael would have read Charles Sheldon's book in his steps, and then, she, uh, and then as she was slithering up to the steps to Sisera, she would have stopped to think, what would Jesus do? <laughs> 
end quote. Uh, the problem is that the Bible seems to approve of Jael's act. Uh, in in 524 to 27, um, it, it condemns the town of Meroz uh, for not participating in Jael's uh, act. So we read uh, in 524 to 27, this is Deborah's song about the victory. Uh, Deborah sings the song, Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent, and so on and, and so forth, and, 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 re- and, and proclaims blessing over her. So the problem is um, that while some uh, think that, that her actions uh, were, were inappropriate or or uh, you know, would have been violation of hospitalities uh, norms and so on and so forth. The Bible seems pretty pretty clear um, that that she was that she was blessed and to be praised for her actions in defeating the enemies of Israel. Um, so that that is part of the poetic song in Judges five. Uh, it's more emotional than figurative. It's not necessarily uh, you know an, an allegorical poem. Uh, it's a song. It, it is highly emotional, but it is a, a rather historical narrative. It's kind of like the midnight ride of Paul Revere would be for us. Uh, is Deborah's song. So the poem magnifies Yahweh's involvement in in the victory. So we read in verses four and five. Um, I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earthquake, the heavens also dripped, the clouds also dripped water. The mountains flowed with water at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. So speaking of this great victory and Yahweh's um, Yahweh's uh, victory, and it shows that this is actually a victory over uh, over Baal. Um, Baal was the storm god of the Canaanites. Um, and so th- this victory where it talks about um, uh, Yahweh kind of ruling from the clouds and dripping water and the mountains flowing with water, right? So, so Baal was a storm god. This is a little bit of a polemical jab at that saying, you know, these Canaanites would have trusted in in Baal for their victory, this storm god for their victory, but it's actually Yahweh, uh, the true god of the storm, uh, that that uh, accomplished the victory. So there's some polemics happening there um, in in that verse. Um, there's a negative evaluation of the tribes that didn't join the battle. Um, so we see uh, we see this throughout the, the the there's a willingness to participate is the ideal. So in five two. Uh, Deborah sings for the the leaders of uh, for the leaders leading in Israel for the people volunteering bless the Lord, um, but we do see she kind of names names of, of those uh, who weren't who were there and who weren't there. So uh, in fourteen to eighteen are the blessings for those who participated in the military victory. Um, so Ephraim, Benjamin, Makir, which is a subdivision of Manasseh, uh, Zeb- Zebulun, Naphtali, and Issachar all participated. Um, but we see that in 15b and 16, uh, Reuben, uh, Gilead, which is Gad, uh, Dan, and Asher didn't uh, participate. Uh, the Reubenite pastoralist seems indifferent to the plight of the other tribes. Um, uh, in, in 16, uh, sorry, in 15b and 16, it says, uh, among the divisions of Reuben, there were great determinations of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Um, kind of saying that, you know, they, 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 they kind of seem to go back and forth. Some of the Reubenites seem to be involved, some didn't. Uh, Dan and Asher did not want to jeopardize their economic future. Uh, which was dependent on the Phoenician commerce uh, and shipping uh, at this at this period of time. 
um, and they, 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 they did not want to participate. It, it's seen as apathy and kind of self-centeredness, and, and this, it's seen actually as a positive support uh, for the enemies uh, of God. Uh, following this, following uh, the cycle, we see uh, at the very end, the very end of verse 31, uh, we're told that the land had rest for 40 years. Uh, and so that ends um, this major this major cycle um, of the, um, uh, uh, the, the Canaanite and Barak cycle. So that ends up through uh, chapter f- uh, in, end of chapter five. So next time we will pick up with the Midianite and the Gideon cycle uh, in chapter six, which is a ginormous step down in the spiral. So we've started to see the spiral going down and down in subtle ways um, that you kind of have to pick up from the narrative. Uh, the Gideon cycle, that downward spiral is going to smack us in the face. So thank you again for joining me on this episode. Hopefully this has been uh, beneficial for you, uh, opening up God's word and studying through the book of Judges. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to reach out to me. You can email freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit the blog, freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or you can join the discussion at the Freethinker group page on Facebook. Join us again next time as we continue uh, going through the exposition of the book of Judges. Good night and God bless.